Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, just for who you are and what you are to us in general. And Father, you're so faithful. You love us so much. And I just thank you, Lord, just um, just for allowing us to be here. So Father, I pray for safety on the grounds. I pray for every heart to be receptive to your word, no matter what classroom they're in at this time, what building they're in. Um, And I just uh, pray once again for power and strength for your servants who are serving in any capacity tonight. And I do pray for a fresh filling of your spirit and for the gift of teaching that I'll be able to rightly divide your word of truth. I thank you, Lord. I love you. And we give you praise tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 10 through 24. And the title of the study is Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost. And so just for a short review, um, just based on the uh, previous study, um, Adam and his wife um, ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and we call that the forbidden fruit because God told um, Adam not to do that, not to eat from that tree. And Adam, of course, would have passed that uh, commandment on to his wife, whom we know as Eve. And so after they ate that forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, their eyes became open. In other words, they became aware of good and evil. And so by experience, they knew evil as they disobeyed the commandment of God. And so they fell from innocence. And so we talk about the fall of man occurring here in Genesis 3. And so what they did was they fell from innocence and they fell from whatever state in which the Lord had created them originally. And so at this point, their fellowship with God had been broken. And so they became aware of their nakedness. Therefore, they sowed fig leaves in order to cover up their nakedness or their shame. And as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the Garden of Eden, the scriptures tell us that they hid among the trees. And so the scriptures tell us as well in verse 9 in Genesis 3 that God called out to Adam and he asked him a simple question. And that question was, where are you? And so we pick up at verse 10 in Genesis chapter 3. It says, so he said, and this is Adam speaking, I heard your voice or the sound of you walking in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, and this is God speaking, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And so Adam admitted that he was afraid when he heard the Lord walking in the garden because he was naked. Adam, of course, he hid. He was, once again, he was ashamed. And so there's many people even now and throughout history, even after Adam and after Eve, they they know that they're in sin. And because of that, they are ashamed and they try to hide it. 
as much as they can. They don't want anybody to know about it. And they're in so much uh, sin and, and shame that they try to hide from God. But, but in what way do they hide or try to hide from God? You see, some people, they try to avoid opening the scriptures. Uh, they feel so convicted. They don't want to open up the Bible. They feel so ashamed. They don't want to read the words that have come straight from God because they know that their sin will be exposed or they may even avoid going to church. They, you may not see them for a while because they're so convicted or, or, or maybe they even feel this condemnation. And so they would avoid going to church. And so they would keep themselves hidden, even from fellowshipping with the rest of the body of Christ. So just like Adam, there's many people who know that they're in sin and therefore they are ashamed. In verse 12, it says, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And so here, just in this statement alone, we see a couple of blames come from Adam for his sin. First of all, he blamed the woman, the woman, of course, being his wife. He said, of course, she gave me of the tree. So it's all her fault. And there's even husbands, of course, since we're talking about this, who would uh, blame their wives for their certain sins or whatever sins they may have committed. You know, some husbands who know they ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, some of them would say, well, well, I'm not going to love her or show her love as Christ loved the church because she is not submitting to me or respecting me according to the word of God. And so they're, they're waiting for the wives to do something and they're putting blame on the wives for what they're not doing. And so even now, just like Adam, some husbands are doing this. There may be even some people who are blaming their parents for, for some sin that they're committing. Oh, oh I have this addiction. I'm, I, I commit this sin and, or, or I have this struggle because of my parents. Because my parents set a bad example. And so instead of taking responsibility for their own sin, they would shift the blame to someone else. But even worse, you, you see another blame here. Another one that he blamed in this statement. See, indirectly, Adam blamed God. He blamed God indirectly. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. The woman who you gave to be with me. And so he's blaming God. And there's even some people who blame God directly or indirectly for their own sin. Lord God, if you have not put me in this family, if you have not put me in this job, if you have not allowed me to have what I wanted, then I wouldn't be in this position. Lord, you know, I didn't need that car, but I, you allowed me to buy that car. Now I got it. Now I'm in debt. Now I can't even pay my bills. Lord, it's your fault. And so there's even people today who would blame God, not just indirectly, but directly. So in verse 13, it says, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? 
the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So they admit that they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then once again, you have the blame. And so here the woman, the wife of Adam, blamed the serpent. And of course, this serpent was used by the devil, by Satan himself. And so there's some people like Eve who would shift all of the blame on the devil for their sins. The devil made me do it, some would say. But the devil, he'll tempt us. He may suggest things. He may try to influence us. Either the devil or one of his demons, those fallen angels may may try to tempt us, but we, we still have our free will. We don't have to give in to that influence. We don't have to give in to that suggestion. We don't have to give in to that temptation. In fact, there's some things we blame the devil for and he had no parts of it. The devil's standing back like, no, you did that yourself. But, but some people go overboard and they blame the devil even for stuff he didn't do. But here she shifted all the blame to the serpent. But remember this, we have free will. Now, I will give you this, that, that, that yes, it may be true that some others have been bad, a bad influence. Maybe it's been a sibling or maybe our parents or, or maybe one, our spouse. Maybe a coworker have been a bad influence on us. So I give you that. That could be true. But we must take responsibility for our own sin. We even see that in the New Testament, even dealing with Judas. Yes, uh, Satan, it even says at one point that the, that, that the devil entered him. And yes, he betrayed Jesus, but Judas is still held responsible for his own actions even though he he was under the influence of the enemy. And even though God and his sovereignty knew what would happen and he used that betrayal to allow the son of God to go to the cross. Yet and still Judas, as an example, was still held responsible for his sin. And so it must be for all of us. Although there may be some bad influences in our lives, we must take responsibility for our own sin. There's even one passage of scripture, Proverbs 28, 13. It says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses or forsakes them will have mercy. See, this is the reason God asked Adam and and the woman questions. So he didn't ask them questions because he didn't know the answer. No, God asked Um, Adam and and Eve these questions in regard to what had happened because he was giving them an opportunity to confess. They were given the chance to confess their sins. And the word confess means to say the same thing as another or to agree with, assent. So in other words, when we confess our sin, we we are agreeing with God that, yes, God, this is sin in my life. Yes, God, this is bad. And so God has given them an opportunity to confess. 
And, and whenever we confess our sin to the Lord, it is a step in the right direction of having our fellowship with him restored. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so confession of our sins is a step in the right direction of uh, having our fellowship with the Lord restored. And so even if you're a Bible believing born again Christian, if you sin, yes, confess your sin. The relationship is not broken. He's still your father if you're truly born again. But, but you're not on the same page with the Lord at that point. And so we need to confess to, to have the fellowship restored. Notice I didn't say relationship because he's still your father. But, but just being on the same page with the Lord. In verse 14, it says, so the Lord God said to the serpent or to the snake, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle or you, you can say domestic animals. He's cursed more than every beast of the field. These will be the wild animals. It says on your belly, you shall go and he's speaking to the serpent and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And so the consequence of the serpent, this literal snake, this animal, you know, the consequence of it having to move upon its belly and, and eating uh, dust, so to speak, it suggests that serpents, uh, the, the serpents that we see today, it suggests that uh, they look different before the fall, before that curse. You see, this serpent's curse, this animal's curse will be a reminder of this instrument that Satan had used uh, to deceive Eve and then, of course, lead to the fall of man or mankind. You see, the fact that it is mentioned that the serpent will eat the dust all the day of its life. It is not necessarily to be taken literally, but what it shows is that it had been humiliated in judgment. In fact, that this serpent eating, um, you know, dust all the days of its life, it's actually a picture of total defeat. And it points to the total defeat that Satan will experience. And this idea, by the way, is actually expressed in Psalm 72, verse 9. It says, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust or suffer total defeat. And so that's what that phrase points to when it talks about the serpent. And of course, uh, pointing to the, the enemy behind the serpent. See what it shows here as we look. At the scriptures in, in Genesis 3, verse 14, and Psalm 72, verse 9. What it shows here is that you do not want to be an enemy of God. There's no way you will win, whether human or some type of spiritual entity, demon. You will not win against our God. And in verse 15 in Genesis 3, it says, and I will put enmity or open hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So as it starts off, it sounds like the, 
literal, physical animal serpent is being addressed. But we also know that the devil who used this serpent to deceive Eve is also being addressed. And so, first of all, we're going to look at these different levels of this hostility and what's going on here in verse 15 of Genesis 3. And so, first of all, in the physical world, there is generally a type of hostility between um, the woman, which of course would include all of mankind that would come through the woman, which would be all of us would come through a woman. So you see that hostility between the woman and all mankind, by the way, and snakes. You, you have people today in Arizona, if there's a rattlesnake in their backyards, they will shoot it. Uh, they will do something, chop his head off, whatever they would do. There's, some people just do not like snakes. Now, I'm one of them. I'm not comfortable with snake. In fact, there, there was one time I was holding a snake when I was younger, and it used the bathroom on me. So that, that wasn't cool at all. And so, we, you know, I'm not a, you, you won't ever see a snake invited in my house. If it's there, it's because it snuck in there some kind of way. And, and I don't want to scare anybody, but we have seen some snakes on this campus. Uh, but generally, there's some type of hostility between the woman and, like I said, including mankind who would come through the woman and snakes. Just... Just butt heads. But then spiritually, there will be hostility between Satan and the woman. And once again, including mankind that will come through the woman, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. Hostility between Satan as well, who is also referred to as the serpent in other parts of Scripture. And the woman, this hostility. So you see this hostility going on. But then it, it, you see also this hostility between the offspring or the children of the devil and her seed. So what do, what do people mean the children of the devil? The, the children of the devil are those who, of course, they do not have a personal relationship with God through repentance and faith in Jesus. So, yes, they're children of the devil, not biologically, but they act like their father, the devil, because they, they, they practice sin. This is a continual, habitual sin. And we're going to see that in 1 John, if you want to turn there, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And so you have a clue there. Verse 7 is talk about practicing. It's a habit. And so when you get to the following verses, you'll know that it's talking about practicing sin, not some one-off sin. And so it talks about practicing righteousness there in verse seven, just as he is righteous. So remember the term practice. We're going to keep reading in verse eight. So he who sins is of the devil. Again, remember, you want to think of practice. These are those who practice sin. 
This is their way of life. This is their rule of life. I'm not talking about a Christian who sins as an exception to the rule. No, I'm talking about someone where this is their rule of life. And it is their rule of life because they're not born again. They do not have a new nature that comes from God, that comes from above through the Holy Spirit. But they only have the sin nature, that inclination to sin. And so they're going to practice this sin. And so he who sins, it's their habit to sin. They, they sin habitually. They're of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And so children, by the way, they're going to act like their father. And so someone who practices sin, they're acting like, once again, this is not their biological father, the devil, but, but, but just in a sense of uh, the character. He sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the son of God, that's Jesus, he was manifested. He was revealed, in other words, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is the slanderer. That's what the word devil means. Whoever has been born of God. In other words, you're born again, just like what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter three. You must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. Or I could put it this way. If you want to be a part of the family of God and call yourself a child of God, if you want to be called a citizen of heaven and be a citizen of heaven, you must be born again. And we're talking about a spiritual birth, of course. And so whoever has been born of God does not sin. This is talking about a habitual sin, your way of life. This is your rule of life. That's what it's talking about. Again, we got a clue from verse seven. And so whoever has been born of God does not sin. Why? For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. He cannot practice sin because he's been born of God. So in other words, that new nature that, that you have received from God, that new nature cannot sin. So when you sin, that is, that is the old you. That is your old nature rising its head up. But that new nature from God that is perfect because it comes from God, that 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 new nature is not sinning. And so because God's seed is in you, that new nature is in you that you have from him. A true born again believer cannot continue in sin and feel comfortable. You're going to be convicted. And if you don't respond in confessing your sin and if you don't respond by repenting, what's going to happen is you're going to be chastised. You're going to be spanked by our heavenly father. And and that's what God is talking about, that 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 he's going to chastise those he loves. And in fact, if there's somebody who claims to be a Christian, but they can practice sin and they don't feel bad about it, they don't feel convicted and they just are happy in their sin. And on top of that, if they're not being chastised by the Lord, I will tell them that they need to check whether or not they're truly saved. Because the Bible says that if you are not without chastisement, then you are illegitimate. The King James Version uses another word. You can look it up. But it's an illegitimate son if you are without chastisement from the father. And so this is talking about somebody who is sinning habitually, they're, they're of the devil. But whoever, once again, has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children, here you go, of the devil are manifest. I read that because it talked about the devil's seed in Genesis 3.15. So we want to 
uh, look for a reference. So it talks about the children of the devil are manifest. How? How are they revealed? How do we know a child of God versus a child of the devil? It explains it here in verse 10 uh, in 1 John 3.10. It says here, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, that will be your way of life. That will be the rule of your life. If you're a true believer, righteousness will be the rule of your life. Sin will be the exception. Whereas here with the unbeliever, somebody who's not born again, they won't love their brother and righteousness will not be something that they practice. And so there's a difference there. And so, yes, there are some who are still a child of the devil. And I can say I was once in that place, but praise God, he convicted me of my sin and I am now born again and in the family of God. And, and, and I know most of you in this room can say the same thing and praise God for that, that we are now his children. And so once again, anybody can become a child of God by being born again. You have to be born into the family of God through faith in Christ. But then there's something interesting that's said about this woman's seed. And you see that the word seed has a capital S. So seed or offspring, however you want to translate that, whatever version you're looking at. And so this woman's seed It's speaking actually of the Messiah. So even early on in the Bible, you have a prophecy about the Messiah. In the New Testament, it's the Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And so it's speaking of Jesus. And in fact, because he is called the woman's seed, it's actually suggesting that he will be born of the woman. Because we know that it is the man who has the seed. The woman has the egg. But but here it says the woman's seed, once again, referring to the virgin conception and birth already early on in the first book of the Bible. And it also says that the woman's seed, speaking of, we'll just say Jesus because we know who it is, because we have the entire Bible. We have the entire canon of Scripture now. So we know the seed is Jesus uh, we, we know that he's going to, according to uh, Genesis 3.15, that he's going to bruise the head of the serpent or of Satan. But at the same time, this serpent or Satan will bruise the Messiah's heel. And so I first want to address the Messiah's victory. I want to address Jesus's victory over Satan, where he talks about he'll crush his head. And so he's going to crush the enemy's head. You see, according to Colossians 2.15, it tells us that Jesus disarmed the enemy. Whatever weapons that this spiritual evil army uses, he disarmed the enemy. And then according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, uh, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. And it says that he freed those who were subject to bondage through the fear of death. So, of course, the the enemy, the devil, used to use death as a weapon to strike fear in the heart of mankind. But Jesus took away that weapon. That's not something he can use on the believer. 
Because death for the believer is just a doorway into eternal life with God for us. And then according to 1 John 3, 8, and we read this previously, Jesus also destroyed the works of the enemy. He destroyed it. And so we see those various ways that the seed, that the Messiah bruised the head, crushed the authority of the devil, crushed his power. But then, of course, the enemy, it says, shall bruise the heel of the Messiah. And so, in other words, the, the, the serpent, so to speak, the devil, so to speak, will be um, able to strike at the heels of the Messiah because the Messiah will be at a level that the devil or the serpent can attack him. And how was that? Well, that's because the Son of God became fully man or truly man. And because the Jesus, who always existed in eternity, because he is God, he's truly God. So because he took upon a, a human body, became fully human, now he was in striking distance for the enemy to strike his heel, which, of course, this is talking about him going to the cross. This is talking about the crucifixion. But what the enemy didn't really realize is that him striking the Messiah's heel is that the crucifixion, in other words, will be the very thing that will propel Jesus to the victory over the enemy. The very thing that will propel him to victory over darkness and to set man free from the bondage of sin. And so what we see in this verse in Genesis 3.15 is actually referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. It's a Latin word, but this is the first announcement of the gospel about Jesus crushing the enemy. And of course, we know why he would do that, to set us free from bondage to sin and set us free from condemnation to hell. And to make sure that we'll have the opportunity to have a relationship with God, the father, through faith in him. In verse 16 in Genesis 3, it says the woman or to the woman, he said to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception or pregnancy. Um, One version of the Bible says, I will intensify your labor pains. And so in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, shall rule with authority over you. And so here we can we can see the consequences for the woman due to her eating the forbidden fruit. First of all, we see that her sorrows will be multiplied. And second of all, we see that carrying a baby in her womb will not be an easy task. And then we see, you know, and and just in talking about that, we see that in pain she'll bring forth children. And so my wife and I, we had four children. And every time she got pregnant, I got a little scared because because I thought she was going to be mad at me because I saw what she has gone through. And I'm going to tell you, that is a strong lady. You know, she's going through stuff and I'm cringing. You know, one of the actually two of them, but the first C-section, two of them were were natural, you know, just straight, whatever. And then 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying. I know. And then two of them were C-sections. So he had two and two that way. And so the first C-section, this is how tough my wife is. She's just laying there. She, first of all, she was excited to get the shot in her back. I've never seen anybody smile to get a shot in her back. And not only that, but as she's laying there and I'm, I'm behind the curtain while they're doing their thing and I see her body jiggling and moving and I know what's going on. I can picture it in my mind. But then I made the mistake of listening to the doctor. You want to come over here and see? So, you know, I was being nosy. I went over there and saw and Mr. Nosy almost fainted. And so I had to step behind again. I, I almost fainted, you know. So, so you women are tough. But, but yeah, that is true. And, and you know that you can, you know, tell everybody better than I can that in pain, you, you're bringing forth children. This is due, of course, to the curse because of that, uh, that sin of eating that forbidden fruit. But then you see that her desire shall be for her husband. One version of the Bible, the EXB, it says uh, the word desire implies, oh, desire to control. The New Living Translation or NLT says, or you will desire to control your husband, where it says your desire shall be for your husband. In fact, if you, if you do a study and you look at the Greek word, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word behind desire here in, in Genesis 3 verse 16, if you look at the Hebrew word for desire here, um, you, you'll notice that that word desire or that same Hebrew word for desire here is the same one that is used in Genesis 4, 7, where it talks about the desire of sin to master over Cain. But instead, Cain, and we'll get to that later, Lord willing, should master it. And so that same word is used here. And so it does appear that uh, it is speaking of the fact that it will be a challenge for the woman to embrace the husband's role of leadership in the home. And so, of course, we've heard of this happening and so forth. But with the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, women, you can do that. Gentlemen, husbands, you can love. We can love our wives as Christ loved the church by that same power that women can fulfill their role in the marriage. But here it says that the husband shall rule over you, have authority. But by the way, the, the husband ruling or having authority over the wife was already established before the fall. And it was established before the fall because he was the first one out of the two created. And so you see the struggle even today. And, and so all of these things have been intensified. But, oh, he's going to get to Adam, the, the one who... In the scriptures is held most responsible for the condition the world is in right now and what mankind has to go through right now. And so we'll get to Adam in verse 17 of Genesis 3. And then to Adam, God said, but you have heeded the voice of your wife. So you didn't listen to me. You listened to your wife and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying you shall not eat of it. And so cursed is the ground for your sake. He says, in toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. New Living Translation says, all your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. Or it could be stated this way, as, as it's stated in another uh, version. 
you will have to work very hard for your food, which implies that before the fall, before the curse, that, that, it, that he didn't have to struggle that much, even though he was working. See, in verse 18, it says both thorns and thistles, which will be the weeds or these prickly plants, it shall bring forth from you for you. So that's what's going to come up out of the ground and you shall eat the herb or the plants of the field. And the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. So what are the consequences for man due to him eating the forbidden fruit? So just to recap, first of all, the ground is not going to be easy for man to work. So in other words, he'll need to labor hard or work hard for his food. So remember when God gave him the job of tending the garden, that that job was pleasant. But now it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. Going to come back home with backaches and headaches. And it says that he will eventually experience physical death. But of course, that's not just for him, but all of the human race. And Job understood this because in Job 14, verse one, it says, man who was born of woman is of a few days and full of trouble. So he understood the implications of the curse. See, but it just didn't curse The human race, this curse just didn't fall upon the human race. But due to Adam's sin, the animal kingdom and the earth suffers as well. In fact, this is suggested in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. So as we turn there, I'll start with Romans 8, 19. It says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits For the revealing of the sons of God. So in other words, the anxious expectation of the creation, they're just waiting. They're waiting for us to be revealed. For for those of us who are believers to receive our glorified bodies. For the creation was subjected to futility or frailty, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so even all creation is groaning. All these earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and all these things that are going on, these monsoons and all these things, the animal kingdom, the predators going after the praise and all this stuff, all of it has been affected due to Adam's sin. And so as we've read all of this in verses 14 through 19, what we've seen is that all the parties involved were dealt with. They were all held responsible for their part. The serpent, speaking of the animal, was held responsible. Satan, who used this animal, this serpent, was held responsible. The woman was held responsible for her part. And then, of course, the man was held most responsible for his part in this sin. 
And so in verses 20 and 21 in Genesis 3, it says, And Adam called his wife name Eve. So now a name is given. Can mean life spring or life giver. That's what her name could mean. Uh, why? Because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And so because God provided tunics of skin for Adam and Eve, he provided them a covering. We, what we can <clears throat> infer from this is that an animal was killed for its skin. And so you have the first death taking place after the fall because of Adam's sin. And so God provided them a covering because their covering wasn't good enough. The fig leaves they sold together wasn't good enough. And so if skins from this animal was used, then that means that it points to the fact that the shedding of blood, speaking of death, was necessary in order for forgiveness and reconciliation with God to be possible. And even further than that, this points to the sacrifice of Jesus as necessary to deal with the sin problem. And not by trying to do our own works to cover our own sin. That's not how our sin is going to be dealt with. That's not how we're going to uh, get ourselves into the good graces of God or earn our way into heaven. Punch our ticket into heaven, however you want to term it or word it. That's not how it's going to be done. This suggests that there needs to be a sacrifice. Unless if there's not, then there's no remission of sins. This blood needed to be shed. This is what it suggested. What it also suggests is that we need to be clothed with clothing that comes from God. And what comes from God? Spiritually speaking, we're talking about his righteousness, not our own righteousness, not us trying to cover up our own sins, trying to do good works and trying to establish our own righteousness, our own fig leaves, if you will. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, It says, for he made him, so the first he would be the father. He made him, him, of course, would be Jesus, who knew no sin. Speaking of Jesus' perfection, he knew no sin. He made him to be sin for us. In other words, God the Father made Jesus be a sin offering for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what does it say in Isaiah 61:10? It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see here, which suggests it once again is that we need to be clothed with righteousness that comes from God. And that can happen when you place your trust in Jesus for salvation. So you're no longer condemned because when God looks at us as believers, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus as if we've never sinned. And that's what it means to be justified. We're declared righteous. And we have a right standing with God. We are clothed with the robe of righteousness. And so you get this idea as God clothes 
Adam and Eve. And in verses 22 through 24, back in Genesis 3, says it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. To know, that is to know how to distinguish between good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed or stationed cherubim. These are types of angels at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden of Eden. So in other words, paradise for them has been lost. Speaking of the Garden of Eden as paradise, it's been lost. And they lost the right to eat from the tree of life. And then on top of that, you have these cherubim, these angelic beings. They were stationed at the east of the Garden of Eden, Eden, along with these flaming swords turning every which way. To make sure that they would not have access to the tree of life. But why? Well, because if they were able to eat of the tree of life in their current condition. Then they would live forever in that condition. Deteriorating and just just not up to the speed, so to speak, or, or not the way that God designed them to be. But they would live forever in a fallen condition if they were able to eat from the tree of life. So God sent cherubim there and this flaming sword there. And so in this judgment, by the way, we see that God was merciful. And so even here we see that God does not change who he is, even in judgment. So, yes, even in judgment, God is still merciful. He, he is still compassionate. He is still gracious He is still loving, even though there's a time for him to judge. But as we study Genesis chapter three, that now we see the reason and come to know and understand the reason for God's plan of salvation. And we're going to see this plan of salvation falling into place throughout the remainder of the scriptures. This plan of salvation had to be put in place because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, humans, mankind are separated from God due to sin. That, that means we are spiritually dead. That is without Jesus. And being spiritually dead, we are on our way to hell. That is, of course, without Jesus. Instead of being on our way to paradise or heaven. But there, of course, there is good news. And that's because what Adam messed up, that is the first Adam, whatever he messed up, the last Adam, Jesus Christ cleaned up. You see, in in the Garden of Eden, Adam's will was done. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. You see, in the scriptures in Genesis 3, Adam disobeyed God. But in the New Testament, the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, he obeyed God the Father. 
But when we talk about the first Adam, his action caused access to the tree of life to be blocked. But then in talking about the last Adam and his actions, it resulted in access to the tree of life to be opened. And you'll see the tree of life, by the way, again, in Revelation 22. In Adam, that is the first Adam, all were made sinners. But in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, we are all declared righteous through faith in Christ. But when you talk about Adam, the first Adam and his action, what, what happens is that it brought a curse. Whereas the last Adam, Jesus Christ, with him, he redeemed us from the curse. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that, that he has become a curse for us. And if you really look into it, he even wore a symbol of the curse upon his head. When you talk about the thorn, that that crown of thorns, he wore that symbol of a curse upon himself. You see, Adam's action caused separation from the father. But Jesus, the last Adam, he became and he is the way to the father. The first Adam's sin involved fruit from a tree. But the, the last Adam, he took the penalty for our sins upon a tree, which we call the cross. But, but the first Adam's action brought flaws and weaknesses and sicknesses to our bodies. But because of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, we'll get a glorified body that is modeled after his glorified body. But when we talk about this first Adam, as we see in the scriptures here, his action brought death. But praise God for the last Adam, Jesus Christ, because his his righteous actions as he obeyed the father and he hung on that cross. He stayed there and he rose again because of him instead of him bringing death like the first Adam did. No, he brought life. And first Corinthians 15, 22 tells us for as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ, speaking of this last Adam, all shall be made alive. As a worship team takes the stage, you see, it's it's obvious that we're all connected with Adam, this this first Adam. And guess what? We do not have a choice to be connected with the first Adam. And, And so because we're connected with the first Adam, that means we are born into the human race. That, that means the, the, the flaws, the, the sicknesses and, and death that came about in his own body. That means that's been passed on to us. But, but we don't have a choice to be connected to the first Adam that we see in the book of Genesis. But we can and we do have a choice to be connected with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And so if you have not made that decision today, If you not made up your mind today to be connected with the last Adam, Jesus Christ, uh, the one who cleaned up the mess of the first Adam, I would encourage you to repent. That means change your mind, turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, the last Adam for salvation. See, saints, we can spend our time mourning and we can spend our time being upset over the current state of our bodies. Oh, my body is weak or, or, or my body is sick and, and I just finished working out, but now I'm so sore. I can't even go to the gym the next day and we can complain and we can be upset over the current state of our bodies. 
You know, we, we look good 10 years ago and now we look in the mirror and we're just wondering what happened. What kind of life choices have I made? And we can mourn that and we can be upset over that current state of our body, saints. But, but, and we can also spend our time mourning and being upset over the state of our country and over the state of this earth as we see all the evil that is going on. And we know, Adam, you, you sinned, you disobeyed God and all of us are affected. We, we know that and some of us are upset and discouraged about that. And, and that's one way to go about it. I would encourage it. I wouldn't encourage it for you to be in that state. Just a morning and being upset all the time. Just looking at the, the, the negative stuff. And we know it's true. We know it's there. Oh, and we can be upset over everything that's been lost due to Adam's sin. Or believers, but we, we can spend our time enjoying and rejoicing at the fact that, that we have all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We can rejoice at that. We can spend our time doing that. We can spend our time praising God because of what we have in Jesus, because we are not the same person that we used to be. And because one day in the future, when, when, at, at the rapture or, or at the point where we die and the Lord calls us home that way, we are going to regain that paradise that has been lost. And so we can spend that time rejoicing and praising God over that, or we can choose to sit here and be in the state of mourning. The choice is yours. Amen. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that although paradise has been lost in the scriptures, as we saw in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve were we're kicked out. We thank you that paradise has been regained and that we have access to it through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, for anyone, Lord, who, whose fellowship with you has taken a hit, but they may be believers. I pray that you would convict them and draw them back in the fellowship. Those who are not saved, who may be listening or in the building, I pray for spiritual blinders to be lifted. And that once again, you would draw them to your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would just rejoice and what you have done through your son, Jesus. Although many things have been messed up due to the disobedience of, of Adam, but we thank you, Lord, for what you have done to overcome those mistakes and those sins. I pray, Father, that you would help us this week to be more like Jesus that you would use us to be a blessing to others this week, that you would use us to share the good news of what Jesus has done. And I pray that you bless us as we leave this place, but not your presence. Give us traveling grace. Fill our hearts with your joy and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.